How you guys doing out there? <laughs> oh, that's so unreal. <laughs> anyway, great to have you guys here on the 4th of July weekend. Uh, July, that means the year is officially half over. Won't be that long till you're doing taxes again. Isn't that exciting to think about? <laughs> Enjoy your vacations. Uh, we are finishing up our uh, search through Ruth to see what God has for us in that. We'll be walking through that for the last six weeks. This is our seventh uh, but the fun is not going to end once Ruth ends because next week we start a new series called From uh, This Moment Forward, and it's talking about uh, marriage, uh, and that should keep you entertained even if you're not married. Uh, if you are not married, you want to know what it's like to, uh, to be successful. If you are going to get married, that might be useful, or if you're single and you just want to get together with friends so you can evaluate the married couples that you know to see if you can make fun of them and set them straight, that'd be great. There's going to be application for everybody. Uh, e has the first couple of those messages. Jackie and I are going to get away for a little little time away. We'll be gone for the next two Sundays. Uh, for those of you that know me, you know that I use that uh, time away in Cape May to kind of actually start planning uh, the sermon schedule, message schedule for 2017, the following year. So yeah, I know we work a little bit ahead here. Uh, I do that when everybody is asleep, so I'm not, ne- not neglecting the family. Uh, doesn't that sound like a fun vacation? Work on the plan for the year and a half from now? Oh, anyway, I love it. Anyway, one of the things I hope you have grasped and actually enjoyed as we've kind of uh, trolled through the book of Ruth is, is that it's actually a lot more than just a love story. Now, it is a love story, and, and it's a great love story, but running beneath this great love story is some incredible truth of doctrine about how God does stuff with us. You know, if we're not really careful, we can, if you look at our Bibles, it's pretty thick. The actual deep doctrinal part of the Bible is pretty thin layer in the whole Bible. Uh, that section does teach us some really cool, hard facts about our faith. Oh, here's a hard fact, right? Difficult hard fact, right? But um, you get words like justification and propitiation and imputation and substitution. All those things are really wonderful truths. Uh, if you look at them clinically, they're, not, they're not, so, not so warm and fuzzy. But if you start taking a look at them as they get unveiled with real stories and real people in real time, they begin to be something you just don't understand, but something that you kind of feel and see. And uh, doctrinally, the book of Ruth really depicts this incredible doctrine of redemption. And redemption is what every one of us receives if we're Christians, but Ruth kind of lets us in on what it must have felt like to be Ruth and Naomi in this period of absolute hopelessness and desperation as everything falls completely apart for them in Moab. Uh, But then all of a sudden they pop back into Israel where Naomi left. They come back, there's food, but it's not for them because they got no way to get it. So they're gleaning. Ruth is gleaning in the field, just picking up scraps. Uh, And all of a sudden, Boaz shows up, and he shows favor to her. And then we find out that Boaz is more than just a nice guy. He's a guy capable of restoring their status, making things great for them. Uh, And so there's all that stuff we pursued as as Ruth gleans in the field. Boaz is nice to her. You don't really know what's going on. There's no, there's no, they're not dating. It's just he's a nice guy. And she's trying to keep from starving to death. And all of a sudden, the harvest is about to end. And we saw that the last couple of weeks. And what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We're going to run out of food. We're going to die. And so Ruth ends up going in the middle of the night at the end of the harvest where Boaz is sleeping on his big pile of grain. Uh, she goes at midnight, probably, uncovers his feet. So he wakes up. He wakes up startled that there's a woman there. She says, he says, what are, you, what are you doing? Who are you? She goes, I am Ruth, your servant. And then basically she says, marry me. <laughs> 
And amazingly, he does. He says, okay, but then there's a problem because there's a guy that's closer in relation to them that has the first dibs on her property and her mother-in-law's property. And so there's this big dilemma about what to do. So last week we talked about as Ruth, as Boaz goes to the city gates, he looks up this guy who's aptly named Mr. So-and-so, doesn't have a name, just Mr. So-and-so, the guy who's got the first dibs and the whole negotiation there where eventually the guy says, I'm not interested. Uh, it would mean that I would be giving up part of my inheritance. It would be costly to me. I'm not willing. And Boaz says, good. And the, the guy takes off his sandal, which is the Jewish way in that day of saying, here's the deal. It's a legal deal. I, I give up my rights. You take them. And Boaz says, okay. So we're seeing that all play out. Uh, it's a little bit like for me, the book of Ruth. Uh, back in February, we, we did a movie series, uh, and I preached out of the movie Selma. And I told you all when we did that message that I was actually alive during the period of time when those events in Selma were taking place, but I was just so far removed from it. I didn't really grasp at the time what was going on, but, but seeing it on the big screen, seeing it brought to life and seeing the pain and seeing the hopelessness and seeing the despair and, and the injustice, and then seeing the sacrifice that people made uh, to turn things around just so that blacks in this country everywhere could vote. It just brought it home in a way that uh, the dry history books could not. And, and that, for me, has been, has been Ruth. So we're going to check out this last scene in Ruth today. Uh, as I was doing the blog on this, kind of summarizing the message, this last section reminds me a little bit, if you've ever seen the movie Ants, this whole thing takes place, you know, and it looks like a big universe there, where all the ants are doing their thing. But then at the end of the movie, the, the camera pans back. And you, and, you, and you see that this entire epic took place in this one little patch of ground in Central Park. And so you, this, this is kind of what Ruth is at this, this, this stage. We're going to see God pull the, the camera back, and we're going to see that there's a whole lot more than we thought in the whole story that God is up to and, and doing. So here's where we are. Booth is, uh, Boaz is kind of now talking to the guys in the city gates, the elders and the people who have declared this thing a legitimate transaction for him to buy the property, to marry Ruth, this Moabite, this foreigner. And he says this, as uh, he's now been given the torch to do this. He says to the elders and all the people in Ruth chapter 4, verse 9, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, that was her husband who died in Moab, and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon, her two sons who married Moabite women, including Ruth, over in Malab. They also died in Moab. So he pays for not only his mother-in-law, Naomi, but he pays for everything that her sons, Chilion and Malon, owned or had, sacrificing all of this to basically preserve their family name. He was even interested, I thought, kind of amusing, he's interested in preserving the name of Chilion, who was the husband of Orpah, who's the Moabite girl that decided, hey, I'm not coming back. I'm staying here. I've got a, I got a better shot at making life work for me if I stay here with my family in Moab, unlike Ruth, who decided, you know what? I'm giving up everything. I'm giving up everything. I'm going to serve Naomi, my mother-in-law. I'm going back. I'm going to become a part of the people of God. I'm going to become a believer in God. And so uh, she moves back. But he was interested even in preserving the name of this poor uh, Chilean guy who died over there in <laughs> Moab. He goes on in verse 11. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, uh, we finally find out who she, which, which son she was married to. First time that's mentioned. I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders, the ten elders that they called together to make it a legal deal, 
said, we are witnesses. Now, in those days, <clears throat> you didn't have a lot of legal, legal documents written down to record everything. You had oral agreements that were made before the people, uh, the elders at the city gate, where business was done. And, and a crowd must have gathered as they observed this transaction going on because the agreement was not just observed by the 10 elders originally called in to witness this, but by all the people who had gathered. Uh, the great Matthew Henry, a commentator I love to read about, uh, he has a, in his commentary on Ruth, he sort of says, this whole episode right here kind of reminds him of a verse in 2 Corinthians. And the verse is this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And this is about what Boaz has done. If you had asked Ruth, now you can't ask her right now because she's off camera. She's not in this scene. She's not in this episode. This whole thing is taking place while she's at home wondering what's going to happen. Boaz alone has gone to transact this deal. But if, you, if she knew what was going on, she would have said this. You know this incredible grace of Boaz, who though he was rich for my sake, was willing to give it all, to become poor, so that I through his poverty might actually end up with everything that he has. And that's what Ruth would have felt about Boaz, because he paid everything and he made it public. The Apostle Paul said it this way about Christ, that he has taken our certificate of debt, which consisted of decrees against you and me because of our sin, and that was very hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. So we need to make sure that we don't misunderstand what God has done to give us our forgiveness. He didn't just cancel our debt and write it off as a bad debt, as if it never existed. That's not how God got rid of it. He's not some sugar daddy that just covers the cost temporarily until he's finished using us to get what he wants and then dumps us. A <clears throat> little side note. If you've been with the surge, you know this, that we are... Uh, very involved with Nova HTI, Human Trafficking uh, Initiative, to try to end sex slave trade here in Northern Virginia. You wouldn't think it exists here, but it does. But this slide highlights a new trend I just saw a month or two ago about college women who are looking to get their tuition costs made by basically selling themselves to a sugar daddy who basically trades their tuition for sex. And it crushed me to think that, that, that we've got women who feel this desperate. So, so dads, if you've got daughters, train them to have some character. Train them about what's right and wrong. Train them to have a little imagination, a little creativity. There's more than two ways to get through college. You don't have to have $100,000 in student debt, and you don't have to sell yourself. There's got to be some other way that creative people, smart people can figure out on how to get through college. I got to tell you, I hired a lot of people at the CIA. I, used, I, I demanded to be able to hire the people that were going to work for me that determined whether we were successful. So I hired a ton of people. I got to tell you this. Applicants with no moral compass were not high on my list. So think about what you're doing. Back to the message. God takes care of our debt. Not like this. He takes care of it by transferring it to someone else. And then he caused that someone else to be nailed to a tree, and the price for you and me was paid. Similarly, Boaz publicly and committed himself to assuming the entire price for redeeming Ruth. Now, as soon as this happens, I just want you to notice something. We're going to see it in the next verse. In verse 11, there, there's no probationary period for Ruth. 
There's, there's no period of time where she has to prove herself to move up the ladder of acceptance. She doesn't have to go through a bunch of steps to go from being a Moabite, a foreigner, to being a full-fledged member of Boaz's family, a, a full-fledged member of the people of God. She doesn't have to be an intern first. Why? Because these 10 elders who were called to witness this transaction, what they know is this. They know Boaz. And they know his wealth, and they know his resources, and they know his character, and they know that his word is good. It is not so much about Ruth as it is about Boaz, who he is, what he brings to the table. And as a result, they say this, we are witnesses. May the Lord, Jehovah, make this woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. And just like that, Ruth has this highest honor bestowed on her that you could throw at a Jewish woman. I mean, they could have said, may the Lord make this person, Ruth, like Sarah, the wife of Abraham. That'd be a cool thing to be compared to Sarah, the wife of Abraham, the kind of the mother of the father of the nation of Israel. But Sarah only had a couple of kids. One was in the faith and one was not. They might have said, may the Lord make you like Rebecca, the wife of Isaac. But, you know, she too only had a couple of sons. One was in the faith, one was not, Jacob and Esau. What do you know about Rachel and Leah? Well, Jacob takes Rachel. He also gets Leah in the deal. That's a sermon for another day. He had these two wives, and from them come the 12 sons who would eventually grow into the 12 tribes of Israel. And they all came to faith under this incredible thing where they had to meet their brother who they sold into slavery in Israel. And they repented, and they were forgiven. The elders are proclaiming that they hoped God would make Ruth like Rachel and Leah, who basically were so prolific, so awesome, that they had offspring galore that led to the whole nation of Israel. See, on the same day you and I crested in Christ, we didn't go through some probationary period either. We didn't go through single A ball like the, Nas the Nationals played last night in the, ninth, in the 10th inning, if you saw that game. Anybody see that game? You have no idea. Nationals, they're the baseball team that plays... Oh, okay. It was a disturb, disturbing game. They gave up five runs in the 10th inning <clears throat> on two errors and many hits. Anyway, we didn't have to go through single A like they played last night. We didn't have to go through double A, triple A. We didn't have to go through JV and work our way up to the varsity. I want you, remember what Jesus said to the thief hanging on the cross? Today. Today you'll be with me in paradise. You don't go someplace else and hang out and, and get, your, get your medals. Let me just ask you this. How sweet did that grace from Christ sound to that thief hanging on that cross the first day that he believed. So if you're here this morning and you are like a Moabite, maybe you have no place among the people of God, you're estranged by God like we all were at one point by our sin, should you happen to be bought by God's grace to know that you have a heavenly Boaz, a Jesus Christ, a redeemer capable and willing to pay all of your debt of sin, the instant you put your faith in him, you're pronounced a child, a son, a daughter of the most high God. And the righteousness that is Christ becomes yours by fiat, by right. You're his, just like Ruth became Boaz. And again, all this is taking place without Ruth even being in the picture. All these blessings are pronounced upon her, not because of anything she has or is or has done necessarily. It's all because of the wealth and the willingness and, and the words that have been spoken by Boaz to make it so. She does nothing really to earn them. Then the elders declare this, May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Those are not two different locations. 
Bethlehem was a city. We learned in, verse, in section one of this series that Bethlehem actually means house of bread. It was kind of a, a place where a lot of grain was produced, kind of the bread basket of Israel. And Ephrathah is simply a nickname for Bethlehem. It means a fruitful place. And so the elders are basically saying, we hope that you will become famous out of Bethlehem, that may your offspring be fruitful and, and awesome. And we're going to find out that they were, because if you look at verse 17, you see something interesting. Later on, they have a kid. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Ever heard hear David? Yeah, this thing going on here is not just something that happens for Boaz and Ruth. Ruth probably thought, man, this is, this is the most incredible thing ever. God has been taking care of me in this miraculous way ever since I signed on to believe in him. I, I've now got a family. I'm, I'm going to have kids. Little did she really know what the God was up to at, at the depth of it. Because through her and Boaz, this Davidic line was going to be established. The great-grandchild of Boaz and Ruth turns out to be King David of Israel. And maybe we're a little surprised, really, that you got that kind of thing coming out of Ruth, a Moabite. But if you read history, you know that God has been delighted through time to take people who were fallen and hopeless and miserable and messed up and turning them into incredible things. Uh, just to show you what I mean, I want to take you just on a little walk through uh, the first chapter of Matthew, a few verses there. And what we're going to look for is evidence that God has a habit of taking people who are not so cool and elevating them to some noble place. And you don't have to get very far in Matthew before you see it. Matthew chapter 1, verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. You're probably not familiar with all those, all those names. Judah is one of the 12 sons of Jacob that grows up to be the 12 tribes, the tribe of Judah that ends up bringing us Christ, the Messiah. But the genealogy here that we see doesn't go into detail, but man, there's, there's an incredible story that lie behind these names. Even if you might know your Bible pretty well, you, you might not remember this particular story, but back in Genesis chapter 38, Judah, one of the sons of, of Jacob, he wanders off the reservation. And he takes a Canaanite wife. And he had some kids by her. One of those kids named Ur, E-R. He also grows up and he marries a Canaanite woman too. Just not what he's supposed to do if you're a good Jewish boy. Her name was Tamar. And we're told that Ur was so wicked that God basically killed him. He dies. So dad, dad commands the next brother, Ur's brother, to raise up children with Tamar so that Ur's name won't be forgotten. Well, Ur doesn't want to because if he raises, raises up kids, then it's gonna, some of that inheritance he has is going to go to them. He doesn't want to, so he doesn't do it. So God kills him too. <laughs> then you got Tamar, who's now fretful that she's never going to be able to get a husband. Now, Judah had promised her that he was going to give her a younger, uh, one of his younger sons, but years go by and it doesn't happen. So Tamar's getting more and more depressed about, is this ever going to work out? Am I ever going to get a husband? Am I ever going to have a family? So Eventually, Judah's wife herself dies, and Judah's in mourning. Tamar comes up with this great idea. She dresses up like a prostitute, and she seduces him. So, in this family line that we're talking about, Christ, you've got incest and prostitution. Out of that incestuous relationship between this father-in-law and daughter-in-law come these two boys, twins, Perez and Zerah. And God places Perez directly in the bloodline of Jesus Christ. In the direct bloodline of Christ, you've got incest and prostitution and all kinds of foreigners mingled in. Pretty pure bloodline, right? Keep looking. Look in verse 4. 
and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by, that's right, Rahab. Here we find out that Boaz's mom was Rahab. Maybe this gives us a little bit of a clue as to why Boaz wasn't all that, had that much of a problem, reaching out to this disenfranchised girl named Ruth, the Moabite. His mom was Rahab. She just didn't dress up like a prostitute. She actually was one in Jericho. As such, she was condemned to die with the rest of the city because of its wickedness. But God removed that judgment on her when she basically started to believe in God of Israel and sheltered the spies who came to check out the city. So now in the family line of Christ, you've got two cases of prostitution. Continue, verse 5. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. We already know about Ruth. She was a Moabite. You remember where the Moabites came from? First message in this series. It literally was a lot of trouble. A guy named Lot travels from the land of Ur with his uncle Abram to the promised land that God's going to show him. And uh, Lot decides to settle in a little city you may have heard of called Sodom. God comes to destroy the city because of its wickedness. He tries to rescue Lot's whole family, but Lot's wife turns around and she's turned into a pillar of salt. Lot and his two daughters end up living in a cave. The daughters fear they're not going to be able to find husbands. It seems to be a trend in the day. So they get dad drunk and they commit incest with him. Out of that relationship, you get two boys, Ammon and Moab. Now you've got cases of incest, prostitution, and a bevy of these foreign Canaanite women. Again, not a great bloodline. This all kind of reminds me of a conversation my wife, who was my fiance, my, my fiance at the time, had with my dad shortly after we got engaged. She's, <laughs> she asked my dad to uh, tell her about his family. His response was one sentence, and it was this. Well, if the earth opened up and swallowed them, it'd be a better place. <laughs> and that was the end of the conversation. <laughs> I don't know, maybe they would all fit in this 100-foot hole that just mysteriously appeared in the middle of Guatemala City in 2010, I don't know. But you could kind of understand what we've just been reading, that maybe Jesus would have said something like that about his ancestors, except for the fact he was Jesus, of course, and would never be that mean. The genealogy of Christ goes on. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, you would think that would say that David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba because he was... That was his mom. And Bathsheba was David's wife. But that's not what it says. It brings us back to the sordid tale of how David and Bathsheba actually met up. By saying David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, God's highlighting that David obtained his wife Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, through the adultery and old subsequent murder of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. So now you've got adultery, you've got murder in the line of Christ, you've got adultery, incest, prostitution, murder. All these men and women are involved in the line that actually produced ultimately the savior of the world. And several of the women involved were not even from God's chosen people, Israel. Why does God do this? What's he up to? What's he trying to say? I think there are three reasons maybe God goes about it this way. In a Jewish culture that looked completely down on anybody who wasn't Jewish, it's just interesting that God sends a signal that he considers non-Jews, or as the Bible often refers to them as Gentiles, 
as very, very much worthy of his love and affection, very much interested in folding them into his family line. God's also telling us this. All this rottenness that people do, it's all forgivable. God's ability to forgive extends even to things that we as humans have a tough time coming to forgive. And lastly, I think this. These people showing up in Christ's bloodline totally destroys any theory that somebody might have that that Jesus got his nobility from his bloodline. He didn't have a fantastic bloodline. It's a pretty rotten bloodline. The holiness of Christ had zero to do with his inheriting anything from his human family tree. Lesson. You're here this morning and you're a prostitute. (laughs) First of all, welcome. We're great to have you. If you stumbled in any area of incest or adultery or drunkenness, or maybe you killed somebody, maybe you're convinced because of those things that God could never love you. You just need to know, we just read passages where not only those people loved, not only those people forgiven, they are elevated to some pretty high status places. If you're in the direct bloodline of Christ mentioned in the book of Matthew, that's pretty high level. God delights in taking the Tamars and the Rahabs and the Bathshebas and the Ruths and making something incredible out of them. See, we, we have a tendency, I think, to think that, well, God is good, but maybe he's not so great at his job. We tend to question his greatness a lot. God, why did you allow this to happen? God, why did this not happen for me? Why did you do this? Or why did this happen? Why didn't you do this for me? Why, why did you avo- not do that for me? We, we forget really how great he is. I, I used to play a pretty mean game of ping pong in, in the day. Uh, but I met a, a guy at Indiana State who was actually great. Uh, he'd play at your level along with you, just slightly above you to help you up your game. Uh, and he'd always barely win, but you felt like, you know, maybe you could have taken him if you just had a little bit of this or that go your way. And if you forgot just who he was, and you started talking smack to the guy, you got him riled up a bit, here's what he would do. He, he'd put his paddle down, he would get literally a Coke bottle. He would spot you 20 points, and you'd play, and he'd beat you 22 to 20. <laughs> Every time. If a guy's using a Coke bottle to play ping pong and he beats you, after spotting at 20 points, he's great. God is like that. He is so great that he will not only find a place in heaven for the most messed up people, he will actually place them in the direct lineage of Christ himself. So we ask, how in the world could God, how in the world would God use such wicked men and women to perform his will? The answer to why God uses and how God uses people that are wicked and messed up Truth is this, that's all he uses. See, we tend to forget how great God is and we tend to forget how messed up we are. We actually think we're better than we are because we look at the people in this lineage and think, hey man, I'm not as bad as they are. Yeah, we are. We're in the same boat. So be encouraged. There's no one outside of God's grasp. Back to Ruth, verse 12. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. We've heard those names before. Because of the offspring the Lord will give to you by this young woman. See, the book of Numbers tells us this. Perez, one of those guys that we just mentioned, he had so many descendants, his, his family tree was so prolific that, that the people couldn't even keep track of it. They had to actually divide it into families just to keep track of it. All those people grew up to become the city of Bethlehem. And you're going to see pretty soon that this, not only was there human uh, offspring, there was spiritual offspring that came from this uh, family tree. Ruth 4, 4.13. So, 
happiness ever after starts. Boaz takes Ruth. She became his wife. He went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Interesting to me, she was married to Malon for about 10 years. No kids. She marries this older guy. Boom. Kid comes right away. God fixes it. The women around, namely the mother-in-law, is just delighted. They go, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons. He has given birth to him. Folks, remember when Naomi came back to Israel? What she said? Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Which means bitter. Why? Because God has dealt bitterly with me. I've got nothing. I've returned from Moab with nothing. I've got no husband. I've got no sons, no children, no, in, no heirs. I'm going to die impoverished. And now they place a grandchild in her arms. And they say, blessed be God because he's given you a redeemer. This little boy's going to grow up. He's going to get married. He's going to have kids. And the family line is going to continue. And these gals are praising God for what he has done. And they're paying Ruth this incredible high compliment. See, in Israel, in Israeli lore, if you had seven sons, that was considered the perfect family. Seven sons were the perfect family. And what these ladies are saying is, man, with Ruth, you have something far more valuable than if you had the perfect family of seven sons. How little do they really know what God has done? Naomi takes the child, lays him on her lap, becomes his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, who's the father of Jesse, father of David. Obed's a strange name. I don't know if you know anybody named Obed. I met one guy in my life named Obed. There's no other kid in the Bible named Obed. I did a search on the internet. I did find this, a chicken named Obed. So it goes around once in a while. You see Obadiah, which means servant of God, but Obed simply means servant. It's not a name you would normally give somebody. So why most commentators feel that the child had this unique name because Ruth served Naomi or Boaz gave all of his resources to serve the family of Naomi and Ruth. Uh, they were servants. You track this family through time. You see King David. You track it on further to Christ. And you see what is supposed to come out of that line. Christians. Servants. And Ruth ends with this. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Pretty boring, right? Kind of anticlimactic to end Ruth on a bunch of genealogical stuff. But the very end of this book is really pointing this out. That this child that Boaz and Ruth have is not just any old child. He is the child that continues the messianic promise that's been traced all the way through scripture. It goes all the way to Christ. Thanks to the Bible, pulling this family tree together is not that difficult. Genesis 3, God tells Satan, I'm declaring war. There's going to be a battle that goes on through the ages. And somebody coming from this woman is going to end up crushing your head. In Genesis 4, Adam and Eve have a boy named Seth. They call him Seth because he was the appointed one. They understood that God was going to use him to bring this Messiah to pass. You track Seth's lineage all the way to Noah, the only family that survived the great flood. Sam has, or Noah has three kids, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. God chooses Shem, who ultimately was the father of the Semites. That's Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 12, God comes to a Semite 
living in the land of Ur by the name of Abraham. God says, get up, go to a land I'm going to show you. He takes him to the promised land, what eventually is going to become the promised land, right? Abraham has Isaac and Ishmael. God chooses Isaac. Isaac has Jacob and Esau. God chooses Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. God chooses Judah. You see that in Genesis chapter 49. Judah has two kids, Perez and Zerah, by this woman, Tamar. Interesting story about their birth. They were twins. It looked, for all intents and purposes, that Zerah was going to come out first. In fact, his hand was sticking out, and the midwife ties a, a, a ribbon around his hand so that they would know which one came out first. But all of a sudden, he pulls his hand back in, and Perez sneaks up on the outside and comes out first. They named him Perez, which means breakthrough, in honor of the fact he snuck up on the outside and came out first. And then we see the family line go all the way from there, all the way to David, and from David all the way to Christ. Israel was meant to read all this, as well as the book of Ruth, and conclude this, to borrow a line from Gray's Anatomy. We can be something extraordinary with God, rather than simply ordinary with Adam. God is great. He can save anybody. He can use anybody. He can not only save them, he can use them in ways that baffle us. Even sticking the worst of the worst, having been rescued into the very line of the King of Israel and the Savior of the world. As Christians, see, we are by ourselves nobodies. But in Christ, we have the privilege of telling everybody about somebody who can save anybody. And be aware that God, as he does that, we can be sure that he is marching inevitably to accomplish everything that he set out to do from the very beginning. Everything ultimately hangs on Christ. Everything rests on our relationship with him. You know what else hits, hits about this book as we wrap it up? What happened to Orpah? She thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rescue my life. I'm, I think I got a better deal right here in Moab. She stays. We never hear from her again. Ruth said, I'm going to give up my life. I'm going over there with Naomi. And she ended up multiplying it. The man with no name sitting in the city gate talking to Boaz was all about protecting his own legacy. And he ends up not even having one. Boaz sacrificed everything for somebody else. And he ended up giving up so much more than he gave up. You might think this, that by actually giving up your life to Christ, you're going to miss out. History suggests some, this, that the sure way to miss out is to miss Jesus. See, we have no idea what incredible future lies in wait for us with a great God who takes us just as we are and then folds us into his plans. Let's pray. God, thank you for this word. Thank you even for the interruption. Thanks for reminding us we are at war, that this is not home, that we will have people say things about us, that may not be true. Pray that you would protect us, that we can do to love us no matter what, that we would follow you no matter what. Thank you for this book of Ruth that tells us hey, we come from a line. We're not an afterthought. You thought about us from the very beginning. You've made all this stuff possible. and You've marched through time to make sure that Christ would come. And you and and kind of threw into the mix all these rotten people. We go, man, what a rotten people until we think we're rotten. We're rotten too. Thanks for saving people like us. Thanks for giving us hope that you can do the same thing. 
Thanks for loving us. Thanks for reminding us that we're no better than Ruth. We're no better than the Perez's, no better than the Tamar's, no better than the Rahab's. Before you, we're all toast. Thanks for taking our debt of sin up on yourself. Thanks for hanging it on a cross with your body and paying the price. Thanks for even today loving us more than we even know. Pray that you would, as we go through communion, be lifting thankful hearts for your word that tells us how much you love us and that reminds us that we're yours. In Christ's name.